All right, if you're old enough to remember 1995, anybody old enough? 1995, okay, well, if you do, then you can recall um, probably the most, the most um, dominant, memorable news story of that entire year. It was the trial of a man named O.J. Simpson. I was 12 years old when that trial began, but I remember it so vividly, not only because it was a very high-profile court case, but because they televised the whole thing. All of it was on television for the world to see. And so this, this crazy thing happened because of the television coverage. There were a bunch of otherwise very obscure people who in 1995 became celebrities, household names, as a result of this trial. So even now, if I say Lance Ito, Marsha Clark, Mark Furman, Johnny Cochran, Cato Kalin, y'all know exactly who I'm talking about. That's 27 years ago. And it's like it was yesterday because they became so much a part of our national consciousness. Everybody was glued to what was happening, right? And so like it or not, some of those people perhaps wanted a spotlight. Others maybe no, not so much. But now, forevermore, those people are attached to and remembered for that trial. Forevermore, they'll never be able to get away from that trial, right? That's what put them on the map. Well, y'all, as we, as we close... Um, as we, as we kind of start to close out the Gospel of John, we're much closer to the end now than the beginning. We're being introduced here at the end to a host of new characters, new, new people who are showing up in the narrative and then having an effect on the, uh, the, the story. Like so, so some of them, you know, in kind of smaller ways. Y'all remember Malchus, who had his ear cut off by Peter? Barabbas, we saw Barabbas last week. He was a robber who was set free by Pilate in exchange for the life of Jesus. Uh, kind of small players in the story. Others are we introduced that, that have a much bigger role to play, people like Annas or Caiaphas, the Jewish high priest. But nobody has a more prominent role to play here than the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, the man who consigned Jesus to the cross, a man we would have never heard of, although he was certainly a historical figure. He's well-documented in Roman history, we, the, the average American in the year 2022, would not know this man's name, uh, except for the fact that he was connected to Jesus Christ. Uh, Moses, last week, did a great job of introducing us to Pilate, and he pointed out uh, really an interesting irony. The irony is that, that, that although Jesus is clearly the person who's on trial here, Jesus is also the one who really holds all the cards, Pontius Pilate is smart, he's crafty, he, he's got a, a great position of power, to be sure. But all of this story is playing out, as it were, right in the palm of God's hand. Pilate is playing an important role, but he's not the authority that he imagines himself to be. Moses even said it last week that while Pilate is interrogating Jesus, the truth is Jesus is really interrogating him. And so we ended last week, Pilate offers the Jewish leaders a choice, shall I release to you the robber, the rascal Barabbas, or should I release to you Jesus? And the crowd cries out, not this man, not Jesus. Release to us Barabbas, and that's what Pilate does. So we're going to pick up the story now in, in John chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. We're just going to walk through the details. I'll, I'll comment here as we go, but I, I don't want to... Uh, I don't want to dilute the narrative too much. 
because uh, John just writes it so perfectly and beautifully for us to behold. This is John chapter 19. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews! And to give him slaps in the face. Now, just real quickly here, maybe you're like me. When we picture ancient Rome, picture ancient Rome for just a moment. Chances are you're, you're imagining a lot of people walking around in white togas, reading poetry, hosting very sumptuous feasts outdoor by torchlight. It's a very romantic imagination we have about ancient Rome. But the truth is, the truth is that the Roman Empire was a very brutal place. There was no assumption of human dignity or human rights when it came to the Roman Empire. And this is a chief example. John 19. Pilate can find no guilt in Jesus at all. He has nothing to accuse him of. And yet he still hands him over to be beaten and bloodied and humiliated. The the Roman soldiers make for Jesus a crown of thorns and press it down into his scalp. They scornfully put a purple robe around him, purple signifying the color of royalty, and they stage a mock worship service surrounding him and slapping him over and over again across the face as they taunt him, Hail, King of the Jews. Now, it shouldn't matter how many times we read this account. This ought to stir something up in us. Even if I'm not a believer in Jesus, just the, the pure fact of such a, 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 an injustice and a cruelty, this ought to fill us with anger and with sorrow. I think sometimes as church people especially, we hear the most famous stories so often that we become numb to the impact of them. But y'all, we look at this, what they did to our Lord. How could anybody have treated him this way? Now in verse 4, Pilate came out again and said to the crowd, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Uh, It's been a long time since I saw the movie The Passion of the Christ. I may have only seen it once when it came out. But there was one, uh, many scenes are very powerful. One scene that really strangely kind of stuck out to me was this scene right here when Pilate brings Jesus out, crowned and robed, and says, Ecce homo, behold the man. What's the purpose of this? What's the purpose of bringing Jesus out in this fashion for the crowd to see? Because remember, Pilate, Pilate sees no good reason to condemn Jesus. He finds no guilt in him. He's continued to say that to the crowd. But it appears that Pilate right now is trying another tactic. He's seeing if something else might work. He brings Jesus out to the crowd, now bruised and bloodied, scourged, a crown of thorns on his brow, and Pilate mocks Jesus, but really he's also mocking the crowd. When he says, behold, the man... What what Pilate is saying here is this. Look at this man you're all so worried about. 
This is the guy who's, called, who's caused you so much concern and intimidation. This is the person you're all up in arms about. Look how weak he is. See how silly he looks. Maybe Pilate is thinking here, once I make an example of him, once I show everybody how weak and silly this all is, they'll be satisfied and we can go about our day. But Pilate has underestimated the hatred of the crowd. And we see this in verse 6. So when the chief priests and the officers saw Jesus, they cried out saying, Crucify! Crucify! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Uh, Y'all, back in in chapter 18, when when the Jews first bring Jesus to Pilate, he asks them, what's your accusation? What has this man done? And the Jews simply say, if this man were not an evildoer, we would not have brought him to you. Now, there's something important to note in that. Jesus had broken no actual law that warranted his arrest or trial. And so when the Jewish leaders say, just trust us, Pilate, this man's evil, they're not accusing him of anything. They've got nothing to say against him. And of course, as Pilate interrogates Jesus, he finds no guilt in him. He's done nothing wrong. Well, now, see, the Jewish leaders have to play their true hand. What's really going on here? And that's what they do. This man has not broken any Roman law, And really, he's not broken any Jewish law. But they've made up their minds that he's broken our law of blasphemy. That's the real issue here. This is a man who claims to be God. If you remember earlier in the the Gospel of John, and of course this happens multiple times, but at one point, the Jews pick up stones to throw them at Jesus and kill him right on the spot. And Jesus says, for what good work do you want to stone me? And their answer is, for no good work do we stone you but that you, being a man, have made yourself out to be God. That was the issue. That was the heart of the matter. We have a law, and he's broken it. He's claimed to be the Son of God. They didn't like that, that Jesus made himself equal with the Heavenly Father. Now, when they say this, interesting little note John gives us, Pilate gets scared. When he hears these words, he becomes afraid, and he goes back to Jesus now inside the praetorium, and he says, Where are you from? See, the Romans were also very religious in a different way than the Jews. But the Romans were religious people. They were very superstitious people. And so the Romans held to the belief that divine beings could indeed come down to earth and take on human form. They could come down and inhabit the the, the earth with the rest of us, okay? And so when, when Pilate hears, this man claims to be the son of God or a son of the gods, that actually sends a chill down his spine. Because now Pilate has to reckon with the slim possibility that he has just scourged and humiliated, you know, one of Zeus's buddies, perhaps, or something. A divine being. And so he comes back in to Jesus and says, 
where are you from? Hoping that the answer is not heaven. Right? And of course, Jesus gives no answer. And so Pilate moves on. Verse 10, so Pilate said to him, you do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. So, okay, Pilate says something that's blindingly obvious. Anybody who's watching this could, can see it. Don't you know that I hold your life in my hands, Pilate says. I'm the authority here. I'm the final word as to whether you live or die. And yet Jesus' response is so quietly powerful. Jesus, in one sentence, is going to rearrange Pilate's entire view of the world. You would have no authority over me unless it had been granted you, given you, from above. So who's holding all the cards right here? Jesus, a, a bruised and bloodied mess on the floor. Pilate standing over him. And yet Jesus says, the only reason you're even in this position of authority is that God has granted it to you. Now, I'm sure that Pilate came from a noble family and got a great education and worked his way up the political ladder to become governor. I'm sure he did. But Jesus is bringing everything now down to the, to the foundation, down to the studs. All of this, Jesus says, Pilate's position of authority, Judas's betrayal, this mock trial, the crown of thorns, the, the looming threat of crucifixion, all of it, all of it rests right in the palm of God's divine hand. This is something y'all the early church affirmed. This is not my idea. In, in the book of Acts, when, when persecution began to break out against the early church, they rejoiced. Very strange response to persecution, but that's what they did. And listen to how they prayed. This is the early church's prayer, Acts chapter 4. Listen to why they'd be so confident even in the face of persecution. This is the church's prayer. Now they're speaking to God. Acts 4, verse 27. For truly in this city, Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Pilate did have a measure of human authority, but only according to the sovereign will and purpose of God. God is arranging all of this for the sake of our salvation. And so we can say, we can affirm completely that Pilate was sinful here in treating Jesus the way he did. Yes, of course. And Jesus honestly affirms that in this little section there in the middle of verse 11. It's easy to pass this over because Jesus drops such a big bomb in verse 11. But then look at the second half. He says, for this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Jesus says to Pilate, you are sinning, but your sin is not as great as the one who delivered me to you. And y'all, it's not exactly clear who Jesus is talking about. He might be talking about Judas, the betrayer, or Caiaphas, the high priest. Caiaphas, who most directly 
handed Jesus to Pilate. I, I tend to think he's talking about Caiaphas. But either way, Jesus is saying their sin is greater because these people, the Jews, actually sought to kill Jesus on their own initiative out of spite. Pilate woke up that morning with Jesus on his doorstep. Pilate was not guiltless by any means. He was a sinner. Certainly he sinned in this scenario, but he didn't seek Jesus out to kill him. That was what Judas did. That was what Caiaphas and the high priest did. Therefore, they have the greater sin. Point being, the guilty parties in this narrative are still guilty, but they're not ultimately in control. They're not the ones holding the cards. God is. And so verse 12, as a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him, but the Jews cried out saying, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. The last trick up the Jewish leader's sleeve, the last thing they've got to say in hopes that they can skewer Jesus where he stands, they try to scare Pilate. They failed in convincing him of Jesus' guilt. They failed on religious terms. He claims to be the son of God. Kill him. Pilate doesn't want to. So the last trick they have is by appealing to Pilate's boss, the emperor. Tiberius Caesar is not going to like it when he finds out that some person claimed to be a king and you let him go. You didn't squash it. And you know, Pilate figures they're probably right. Caesar didn't mess around with stuff like that. Nobody gets to claim to the throne uh, except for him, right? And so Pilate, of course, didn't anticipate this when he woke up that morning. But now, just a few hours into the morning, he finds himself, potentially his whole career, maybe even his life is in jeopardy here if he can't get this situation under control. Caesar's not going to like it, and he knows they're right. Therefore, verse 13, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold, your king. So they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he then handed him over to them to be crucified. Well, Pilate, is, he's, he's fed up with the crowd for not accepting his verdict. Over and again, he's issued a verdict. This man is innocent. I find no guilt in him. The crowd will not accept it. They continue to push and push and push. And so finally, he turns to them with a mocking voice and says, I want you to see your king. Behold your king. Shall I crucify your king? And the crowd says, we have no king but Caesar. Now we have to recognize just how bad that is for the Jews to say that. The, the, the Jewish people were under the conquering rule of Rome, yes. But they did not recognize Caesar as their king. The emperor was not their king. They refused to acknowledge such a thing. The very, the very thought of a pagan ruler ruling over God's chosen people, that was like vomit in their mouths. No way. 
And yet here, the chief priests are shouting, we have no king but Caesar. They have abandoned their identity. They've abandoned their, their most cherished principles for political advantage. These men will say anything, no matter how shameful, anything, if it means getting rid of Jesus Christ. And finally, at long last, they've prevailed. Pilate hands him over for crucifixion. You know, as we, as we observe this scene, these first 16 verses of John 19, we get a very clear picture of how Jesus is being treated from both sides. Two very different people and very different approaches. The Romans led by Pilate, the Jews led by Caiaphas, are treating Jesus... Uh, in, in a little bit different ways, right? Take, take the Romans first. The Romans mock Jesus. The soldiers dress him up as a joke and make sport of him. Pilate, continually in this narrative, Pilate is, is parading Jesus around like a circus animal. They think he's a joke. Behold the man. Behold your king. Well, on the other side, we've got the Jewish leaders who scorn Jesus. To them, he is so vile, so unworthy of life, that they want him crucified as a criminal, though they find no guilt in him. Away with him. Crucify him. On one side, Jesus is mocked as if he were a joke. On another side, he's scorned as if he were the scum of the earth. Now, y'all, how could this have happened? How is it that the purest, most wonderful person who's ever lived could be treated like this from every side. It makes no sense to us. It seems so cruel, so unjust, so wrong, and of course it is. But how could it have turned out like this? How could that baby born in the manger have ended up like this? Well, y'all, 700 plus years before this day, God, through the prophet Isaiah, told us that this would happen. And I just I want to read this. This is a prophecy of the coming Messiah, the Savior, centuries before it came to pass. And listen to what the Lord has to say about His Son. This is Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For He, the Messiah, grew up before Him, God, like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. It's, it's the ultimate twist that God would dare send his own son into this world. But as God, of course, Jesus comes as light in the darkness, as purity into a world of sinners as perfect 
in, in grace and humility and truth and kindness and all the rest of God's precious attributes, Jesus embodies them for all of us to see, only to have the world respond by looking down on Him, by forsaking Him, hiding our faces from Him, humiliating Him, condemning Him to die as a common criminal. And yet, that's an irony we can take heart in. In fact, it's something we celebrate. All of that cruelty, all of that, that, that ugliness with which Jesus Christ was treated on this earth, we actually glory in this. Because these words that we just read from Isaiah are not mere predictions of future events. This is a proclamation of God's divine purpose. Remember what we saw from the book of Acts. These evil men did what God's hand and God's purpose predestined to occur. This this shameful treatment of Jesus Christ, all the mocking and the scorn, all the injustice and the cruelty, the very worst of humanity on display. And yet it all serves God's eternally glorious purpose, which is our salvation. That's why in Isaiah, in the midst of all this, these awful words about his being despised, we don't esteem him, he's stricken Isaiah by God's inspiration. Isaiah says, surely our griefs he himself bore. And our sorrows he carried. Now, right here, Jesus is suffering for our sake. For us, God's Son is going to the cross, not for his own sins. They could find nothing wrong in him. He went to the cross for our sins. Jesus is laying down his life as the good shepherd who gives his life for his precious sheep. While men are at their worst in John 19, God is at his best. The very worst thing that could ever happen was actually the best thing that ever happened. Because only by the death of Jesus Christ could sinners be forgiven. Romans 8:32, God did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. At the very precise moment when God could have swooped in in all his glory and effulgence and rescued his son from this injustice, God allowed his son to suffer and to die so that his suffering and his death might be for us in our place. So that sinners might be forgiven and granted the free grace of salvation. Now we, we say this every week. It's, it's the very point and purpose of our gathering. It's the only thing that gives us hope in this broken world. And for all eternity, our anchor is the fact that Jesus Christ stands in our place. That our sins are accounted to Him. And now His righteousness, His righteousness is accounted to us. And that is a gift we receive by faith, not by our own works. And so my encouragement is this, as we see this this mock trial and as our stomachs turn, as the events turn, everything wrong that could possibly go wrong, we're seeing it unfold right in front of us. And yet it is our glory. It is our greatest joy. 
because through his death, we have life. And therefore, we can look at Pontius Pilate, a man made famous by his role to play. We can look at Caiaphas and Herod and the Gentiles and the Jews, everybody who who stands to gain or lose by the narrative here as they watch it unfold face to face. Every single person had their role to play, yes. But Jesus Christ held all the cards. Of his own initiative, Jesus said, he would lay down his life and then take it up again. And because he has died and now raised, we may have eternal life in his name. Let's take joy in this as we pray. Father, this morning, Lord, would you bring us down into this this very ugly place, the praetorium, the pavement. Um, As we'll see very soon, uh, Golgotha, the place of the skull. Lord, the, the, the very place we're reading about where the greatest injustice of all was carried out. And Father, I pray for for all of us this morning that we would feel, as much as we're able to feel it, the weight of this, the, the, the anger and the sorrow of what's being done to Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, I, I pray that we, we would feel in a very uh, real way, Lord, this, the, the agony of all of this, how truly wrong and unfair it, it was. And yet, Father, would you grant us the greater grace, the greater gift, to see your glory shot through it. To see, Lord, that all of it took place according to your purpose and by the the power and grace of your own hand. That every strike across Jesus' face, that, Lord, every, every tip of the thorn, Lord, pressed it through his skin. That every mocking voice, all of it, happened according to plan. So that the perfect sacrifice might be made on our behalf. So that the perfect one might suffer in our place. And so Lord, let us glory this morning. Even as we perhaps weep at the thought of what Jesus Christ entered into and went through for us. Father, give us this this peculiar joy that we have as Christians, that we can look at something so awful and yet feel so rich and grateful. Thank you, Lord, that when we were at our very worst, Lord, you were at your very best, that while we were your enemies, Christ died for us so that we might be justified as a gift. Lord, I pray that we would receive his grace and mercy, that we would receive him as our Savior. And Lord, that we would know we are welcomed because of his grace. We are welcomed in to your presence, your arms, your good favor, both now and forever. Thank you, Lord, for the good news. 
And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.